As the boat left the port that night, the young party goers could not have realised the danger that they were in. As the oarsmen pulled clear of the harbour, they started to pick up speed. No one saw the submerged rock on that dark night. And the ship hit it at full power. And into that silent, watery grave slipped 300 people, including the heir to the English throne. The sinking of the white ship in 1120 was a disaster. The heir to the throne of England, William Adeline, the son of King Henry I, the grandson of William the Conqueror, who had defeated Harold at the Battle of Hastings just 54 years previously, drowned on the white ship. King Henry's only surviving legitimate heir was his daughter, Matilda, who was married to the Holy Roman Emperor, a major, major position in Europe. She was then widowed in 1125, and the Empress Matilda, as she then was, married Geoffrey Plantagenet, Count of Anjou, three years later. So when Henry I died in 1135, the nobles of England were in turmoil. The old king had nominated Matilda as his successor, but she was a woman. And the nobles uh, therefore decided they'd opt for a man, her cousin, Stephen of Blas, um, who became King Stephen. And Matilda was not best pleased. She thought that hers was the most legitimate claim to the crown of England. And she was not alone. Her half-brother, Robert of Gloucester, who was an illegitimate son of Henry I, and therefore not in the line of succession, gathered an army in England to press home her claim. And meanwhile, her uncle, King David I of Scotland, invaded the north of England on her behalf, as well as sort of helping himself to Cumbria and most of Northumbria in the process. So by 1139, the King of Scotland actually occupied all of England north of the River Tees, uh, and no Scottish king would ever control this much of England again until King James VI of Scotland became King James I of England 400 years later. Meanwhile, in that same year, 1139, Matilda finally landed in England, but she was quickly besieged uh, by Stephen in Arundel Castle in Sussex. However, in a case of really misjudged leniency, Stephen accepted that Matilda herself had, had not actually rebelled against him, it was all just the work of her half-brother. So he allowed her to leave the castle, upon which Matilda fled straight away to half-brother Robert's army in Bristol. So there Matilda was with an army now. Um, and by now, you know, with the Scots occupying the north, the rebels controlling the west of England, Stephen had, not surprisingly, sort of taken his eye off the ball in what remained of his kingdom. So nobles seized this opportunity to construct unlicensed castles. That was castles without the king's permission. Uh, and the church started demanding more freedoms in exchange for their support of Stephen's rather precarious position. Not surprisingly, this period of the civil war in England became known as the anarchy. Everyone was out for themselves. And then it got worse, or at least it got worse for Stephen at any rate. In 1141, whilst besieging Lincoln Castle, he was captured by the forces loyal to Matilda and was taken in chains. This is King of England in chains to Bristol. This was the decisive moment for Matilda. She had her hands effectively on the crown of England and she managed to blow it. First off, by, by shackling the anointed king, she'd suddenly created sympathy in England amongst the nobles for poor old Stephen. 
And then she managed to sort of crank up her faulty PR campaign to the next level. She was by now residing at the Royal Palace of Westminster, which in those days was just outside of London, uh, preparing for her coronation. She was that close. And a tradition had grown up that before a coronation of a king, or in this case a queen, uh, they would receive the merchants of London who, and we would hear petitions from those merchants for various tax concessions. And in support for that, those tax concessions, they would pledge their support for the king. Well, Matilda wasn't having any of that. She told that she sent them packing with a flea in her ear. And suddenly the citizens of London raised their armed militia and prepared to march down the road towards Westminster to confront, uh, to confront Matilda. And now it was Matilda's turn to be sent packing and she fled off to Oxford, uh, a well-known haunt for kings in the future to run to Oxford whenever there was trouble in London. Could it ever get any worse? Well, actually, yeah, it could. Because suddenly, half-brother Robert was now captured by troops loyal to the king. So we now had the king in incarcerated and we had uh, Matilda's main military commander incarcerated as well. And without her most capable military commander, Matilda's camp was, was, was basically, it was rudderless, campaign was rudderless. And she agreed to a prisoner swap. Half-brother Robert for King Stephen. And now the free and slight, ever so slightly ticked off Stephen immediately attacked Matilda at Oxford. And once more, the rebel empress was forced to go on the run and she ended up at Wallingford Castle on the River Thames in Oxfordshire. The last time Wallingford had appeared in our, st in our story of England was when her grandfather, William the Conqueror, had crossed the River Thames here and marched on London after his victory at the Battle of Hastings. The ensuing six years were effectively a stalemate between the two sides. Finally, in 1147, Robert died of natural causes at Bristol Castle. He was 57. And the Civil War, effectively without a proper commander on Matilda's side, just sort of petered out. But not for long. Six years later, 1153, Empress Matilda's son from her marriage to Geoffrey of Anjou, a young man called Henry Plantagenet, arrived in England to press his mother's cause and, more importantly, his own claim to the throne. The crucial moment came when Henry and Stephen's armies met at, strange enough, at Wallingford again. I mean, Wallingford's appearing all the time. It's like waiting for a bus, isn't it? You know, Wallingford never appears in history and suddenly it's arriving all the time. Camped on opposite sides of the River Thames, the two sides refused to engage and therefore a truce was declared. Uh, incidentally, a, a month later, uh, Stephen's only son died. And so now, really, what was Stephen left to fight for? Uh, not a lot. He, the, the obvious heir was actually the man sitting across, across the river from him. So Stephen and Henry signed a treaty at Winchester, recognising that Henry would succeed the king upon his death. And Matilda, who was still alive at this stage, uh, stood aside for her son. And just over a year later, Stephen died. And the 21-year-old Henry duly became king, Henry II, the first of the royal house of Plantagenet, uh, who were to go on to rule England for the next 330 years. Henry inherited an England that was approaching some sort of, you know, failed state. Uh, nobles had erected illegal castles, which were strongholds both for them to enhance their own local power uh, and also to potentially defy the king. The church had extended their power. Scotland ruled the north of England. You know, Henry had his work cut out, didn't he? He was, what, 21 at the time. 
So first off, Henry decided to kick the Scots out of England. Uh, back in 1147, he, he promised the king, uh, the North, to King David, his, his great uncle, uh, in return for his support against Stephen. But in the meantime, King David had died and left his 11-year-old grandson, Malcolm IV, on the throne of Scotland. Anyway, Henry seemed to regard that promise to, to David rather like politicians make promises in general elections, you know, uh, their promises to be broken. And, and now he demanded and received the lands back from the young king of Malcolm. He didn't, well, what he actually did was he gave Malcolm some lands, feudal lands in, in England in return for all those lands in the north of England. So job one completed. Now, it didn't take too much for an energetic, young, warlike king with no rivals uh, to the crown to bring the nobles to heel. They couldn't play him off against someone else. So uh, very quickly, he re-established uh, law and order in England. Job two completed. And that just left the church to sort out. Henry II's reign will be remembered probably for three key, key challenges. Okay, the turbulent priests, turbulent family, turbulent Ireland. And in fairness, the last one might not have been turbulent if he'd left it alone. But hey-ho, you know, that's a long history there, isn't there? As I said earlier, the period known as the Anarchy had enabled the church to extend both its influence and far more importantly, its independence from the crown. In particular, the church had through its own courts complete independence from the crown. Priests, no matter what crime they committed, were tried by their peers in a church court rather than having to go to face the king's justices like the rest of his subjects had to. And not surprisingly, these church courts were rather lenient when it came to punishing one of their own, not least when blood had been spilled. If a priest committed murder, and yes, they did commit murder, they would, the, the, the church courts would defrock them, and I would say they couldn't be a priest anymore. Meanwhile, you know, in the king's courts, if you had shed blood, <laughs> any other subject would have faced death or mutilation. In 1164, King Henry, uh, through a thing called the Constitution of Clarendon, sought to curtail the church's independence, and the church leaders were horrified. In particular, they were horrified with Henry's decree that any priest who was defrocked by them was no longer under the protection of the church. And therefore, they were a normal subject and could face the king's justice for the blood they'd spilled. This put Henry at loggerheads with the church, and in particular with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket. Interestingly, Becket was not a priest by training. He'd previously been Henry's Lord Chancellor, like a civil servant, and he was a political appointee. To, uh, to, to the Archbishop of Canterbury. In fact, he was sort of almost, he was, made a, he was made a priest almost like weeks before he became Archbishop of Canterbury. And then when he became the Archbishop of Canterbury, instead of being a, a, a political appointee working for Henry II, he suddenly went rogue, he went native and decided to defend the church. And the church could not have found a stronger defender and Henry could not have found a more challenging opponent than Thomas Becket. The impulse became so bitter that Becket was forced to flee into exile shortly after opposing that constitution of Clarendon. And in fact, he was only allowed back into England after six years of exile in 1170. And if Henry thought that uh, his archbishop would have used this exile to, uh, to, to contemplate and turn over a new leaf, <laughs> he was sadly mistaken. The, the returning prodigal son uh, swiftly excommunicated three of the most senior bishops in, in, in England, the Archbishop of York, the Bishop of London, the Bishop of Salisbury, for anointing Henry's eldest son 
as the future king without Becket's presence or indeed approval. Henry was absolutely livid at his behaviour and in response to his rage, four knights rode to Canterbury and there on the 29th of December 1170, they famously assassinated the archbishop in his own cathedral. Uh, the, 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 the murder shocked England, it shocked Europe, it shocked the church. Within three years, Becket had actually been canonised as St Thomas Becket and his shrine at Canterbury Cathedral became a major centre for Christian pilgrimage across Europe, especially from England. Uh, it was famously captured, of course, in Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales um, 150 years later. If Thomas Becket was a holy opponent, Henry met a had more unholy opponents in his own family. In the same year that Becket was canonised, three of his five sons rebelled against him, actually took up arms against their dad. And this is brilliant. They were joined by uh, the King of Scotland, the King of France, the Duke of Brittany and the Duke of Flanders. I mean, you know, this, this is a hell of a family fallout, isn't it? And just to cap it all, their mother and Henry's own wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, also joined in this so-called Great Revolt. It was a serious military campaign. Henry was forced to conduct a, a military campaign against his own family and only by securing a victory over the English rebels at a place called Fornham All Saints which is just outside Bury St Edmunds in Suffolk, and also by capturing the Scottish king at the Battle of Annick, was he able to secure his own position on the throne. Um, his sons were to rebel on two more occasions during his reign. We are talking about a dysfunctional family here, and this really, in fairness, you know, it, 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 sets, it sets, the, sets the template for the Plantagenets, who, of course, don't forget, the Plantagenets end in, in the Wars of the Roses. So they liked having a family feud. This is like a mafia family in charge of England. The third of Henry's turbulences lay to the West. By and large, the island of Ireland had been left to its own devices by, by the Romans, by the ancient Britons, uh, by the, the, the Romano-Britons of Wales and Cornwall, and by the Anglo-Saxons. But in 1167, that all changed. It was in that year that the King of, Le uh, the King of Leinster in, in, in Ireland was deposed by the High King of Ireland. Uh, arriving in England as an exile, he appealed to King Henry for support to regain his throne. Henry decided not to personally intervene at this stage, but he gave him permission to recruit mercenaries from, from his people. And so the King of Leinster, or the ex-King of Leinster, uh, enlisted the support of a man, a, noble, a Norman noble called Richard de Clare, the Earl of Pembroke, who is known in history as Strongbow. And he recruited him to regain his throne. Now, if there's one thing that Normans liked even more than fighting, it was winning land. And de Clare saw an opportunity to get both in Ireland. So after recruiting an army, he landed in Ireland. He defeated the local forces that were raised against him and reinstated the King of Leinster. So far, so good. Have you ever done a job for someone else and wondered exactly why they are getting all the glory and the rewards when you did all the hard work? Well, that thought crossed de Clare's mind back in 1167. And so he got rid of the King of Leinster, installed himself in that part of Ireland. And now Henry suddenly became interested in Ireland. Maybe he saw that there were rich pickings in Ireland. He certainly saw an opportunity to give lands to his youngest son and the only one who hadn't rebelled against him, 
Prince John. In fact, Prince John was, was known as, as John Lackland because he didn't have lands like the rest of his brothers. Most probably, he didn't want one of his nobles carving out lands outside of his own jurisdiction. If they were in Ireland, they weren't part of, he couldn't control them. And who knows what happened with Norman nobles when they were on the up. So whichever reason it was, by 1171, Henry crossed over to Ireland in person to establish his own authority in the area that De Clare had conquered. Um, and De Clare submitted to him and was willing to you know, pay homage to Henry as he paid homage to him in, in, in Wales. And so began the long and tortured history of the English and then the British in Ireland. By 1189, Henry II had been on the throne for 35 years. In what is sometimes referred to as the Angevine Empire, his realm stretched from the Scottish border in the north to Ireland in the west, and then right down through France, through Eleanor of Aquitaine's possessions, all the way to the Pyrenees themselves. But once more, the 56-year-old king was faced by a rebellion from one of his sons. This time, it was from his oldest surviving son and heir, Richard. The rebellion was actually conducted in Henry's French possessions rather than in England. So over to France went Henry. Henry, however, met his match in young Richard, who, as we will see, was pretty good at this fighting lark. <laughs> Facing defeat and suffering from a stomach ulcer, uh, Henry retreated to the castle of uh, Chinon Castle in his native Anjou. And there on the 6th of July, 1189, he died. Richard the Rebel was now suddenly Richard the King. He was crowned at Westminster Abbey in September 1189. During his coronation, Jewish, Jewish merchants made their way from the short journey from London to Westminster to present the king with, with presents on his coronation. The Jewish population of England had originally arrived um, at the request of William the Conqueror, and they performed a key economic function. The medieval Catholic Church forbade, uh, forbade usury, or the charging of interest on loans. So if you couldn't uh, charge interest and make some money out of lending money to someone else, why on earth would you? If all you're going to do is get back the same amount you've given them, you might as well keep it yourself and, I don't know, spend it on a, a castle or some, I don't know, jewellery or something. The Jews, as non-Christians, were actually exempt from this rule. So they could charge interest and therefore they were more than happy to loan people money. And so the wheels of the economy were oiled. You know, if a merchant or a noble or the king indeed needed to borrow some money, the Jewish community were happy to oblige, at a price, obviously. So not surprisingly, some Jews had done incredibly well from lending the money. Many people in England envied and resented them, as, as has always unfortunately been the, been the way. And added to that, uh, there was a bigoted form of Christianity in play now that blamed the Jews for the, for the death of Jesus, as well as more lurid rumours about that they sacrificed Christian children. Uh, and of course, we had the Crusades going on at the minute, which was really whipping up a, a religious zeal. And at this moment in time, you had a really volatile situation for England's Jewish population and a very, very, uh, very dangerous situa situation for them as well. So under those circumstances, having the king's favour and protection was very important. Hence their appearance at the coronation with their gifts. 
Now, historically, the Jews have been for forbidden from attending coronations. So when they rocked up at Richard's coronation, nobles took it upon themselves to strip and flog the king's, new king's Jewish subjects. Quite what happened to their gifts is a matter for debate, but sure as heck, the Jews didn't end up going back to London with them. Upon hearing of these attacks, Londoners now thought it was free open season on the Jewish population, and now Londoners attacked the uh, city's Jewish population. Looting, arson, murder were visited on this minority. Richard attempted to restore some sort of order by ordering the execution of, uh, of certain ringleaders, but he was faced by a formidable opposition from nobles and churchmen who, for a variety of bigoted as well as commercial reasons, had supported the riot, especially if they owed money to Jews. What better way to not pay off your debt than for the Jew to be dead? The new king then issued an edict protecting the Jews, but this was only loosely enforced by those very same nobles who I've just mentioned, so no vested interest to try and, uh, to try and, uh, to try and protect the Jews, especially as Richard had more important things to do with this time than protecting England's Jews, for he had vowed to go on crusade and recapture the holy city of Jerusalem, which had fallen to the Muslim forces of Saladin just two years previously. A new tax, the Saladin Tithe, was raised to pay for the military expedition. The Saladin Tithe was swinging. It took 10% of every man's wealth. In the summer of 1190, what, seven, eight months after his coronation, he left the shores of England, heading east. Within weeks of his departure, the mob, aided and abetted by the nobility and the clergy, once more turned on the Jewish population. Riots and massacres took place in places like Norwich, Lincoln, Stamford, Bury St Edmunds and Lynn, as King's Lynn used to be called in those days. In the worst excess, 150 Jews, almost the entire Jewish population of the city, died in York. Meanwhile, Richard fought his way through Sicily and Cyprus against fellow Christians before finally arriving in the Holy Land in 1191. And there he captured the ports of Accra and Jaffa, murdering several thousand Muslim prisoners in the process before inflicting a famous victory over Saladin at the Battle of Asuf. Richard then led his crusading army to within sight of Jerusalem itself, but he just didn't have the manpower to launch a, a siege and an assault with the potential that he could still be attacked by Saladin. So by the end of 1192, he had signed a peace treaty with Saladin and was heading home. However, en route home, he ended up being shipwrecked and uh, he was captured, first by Leopold of Austria and then by the Holy Roman Emperor. And in both these cases, these men had scores to settle with Richard from previous, previous slights that he he'd delivered to them during his journey on the crusade. So this is like, you know, past misdemeanors coming back to haunt him. And the Holy Roman Emperor demanded a ransom of 150,000 marks, which was a similar figure to the entire amount raised by the Saladin tithe to release Richard. So a huge tax raising initiative got, got going back in England. It was headed up by the King's brother, Prince John, and his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine. And they raised the money. And finally, after two years in prison, Richard was released. After a very quick return to England, make sure everything was in order, he was off again, this time fighting various rebels in his French domains who were being aided and abetted by the King of France. And it was during, whilst besieging a minor castle in France, that Richard was hit by a crossbow, crossbow bolt in the shoulder. Uh, his wound became so infected uh, that he got gangrene and April 1199, he died.
Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, was King of England for 10 years. He spent less than two of those years actually in England. You know, his crusade and then the ransom that had to be paid for him had financially bled England dry. He treated England like a giant ATM to fund his campaigns. And yet he remains one of England's most famous and revered kings, despite never really being here, bleeding the country dry financially. Maybe it was his very obvious talents as a warrior. You know, without a doubt, he was one of the greatest Christian crusader commanders uh, on any of the crusades that went to the Holy Land. And his victory at Arsouf inflicted one of the very few defeats that Saladin ever suffered. And let's face it, you know, we all like a winner. Henry V, Edward III, there are certain kings that stand out in history as, uh, as warrior leaders. Maybe, maybe it was just the fact that he actually went on a holy war that captured the imagination rather than fighting, I don't know, the French or the Germans or the Scots or something. Legend attributes uh, Richard for introducing St. George as England's patron saint. He, he didn't. He, he certainly visited St. George's tomb uh, in Palestine and sought his divine protection. However, St. George did not become England's patron saint for another 150 years uh, and was, you know, was pushed forward by Edward III. So apart from being a, a winning warrior, what else did he leave England? Well, in 1198, a year before his death, Richard ordered a new great seal to be, you know, to be used on his, his orders and his laws, big stamp. And for the first time ever, the Great Seal of England consisted of three lions. It remains one of the iconic symbols of England to this day. When Richard died in 1199, it had been just 133 years since the Norman invasion. Since then, William's grandchildren, Matilda and Stephen, had fought a civil war, which had led to a new royal family arriving, the Plantagenets. The English have arrived in Ireland, a relationship that still impacts us and the world to this day. An archbishop was martyred and is still remembered in church and school names to this day, St. Thomas Becket. And an English king had been on crusade, a warrior king who becomes a legendary and appears in tales of Robin Hood. Who can forget Sean Connery's appearance as Richard the Lionheart in, in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Uh, probably one of the more unlikely, uh, uh, one of the more unlikely Robin, uh, Richard of Lionhearts with a Scottish accent, but great moment in a, in, a, in a pretty cheesy film. And England has a new emblem, Three Lions, which as many of you will know, is still the emblem of England, especially in the sporting arena. The golden thread of history continues to weave its story and continues to connect us to our past.